Hello, and welcome to Interlude, Women's Cancer Stories with Dr. Toplinski. I am a medical oncologist, and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Every week, I bring you stories of incredible women who are all at different stages of their cancer journey. We will talk about anything and everything related to the cancer experience. These women will share with you how cancer has affected them and how they are living life despite that. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as any medical advice as each patient has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today my guest is Perry Burke. Perry is a personal essayist, a lawyer, and a mother of two children. She's currently finishing her memoir, The Meat Packer's Daughter, while undergoing chemotherapy for recurrent colon cancer. In this episode, we discuss how she first knew something was wrong while working out at Orange Theory Fitness, her initial colon cancer treatment and subsequent recurrence, and how in the midst of treatment, she decided to do something for herself by going back to her maiden name. Welcome, Perry. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you for being here today. Can you introduce yourself to everyone who is listening? Sure. Hi. My name is Perry Burke, and I'm a 45-year-old mother of two. I live in New Jersey. I'm a lawyer and an author. And let's see, I like to ski, and I'm an avid reader, and I like to cook. And you're also a writer. You didn't mention that. Oh, yes, I am. Mm -hmm. I'm finishing a memoir now, and I'm also an essayist. I can't wait to hear more later about what prompted the memoir. For now, can you talk about how you first knew that something was wrong? I was uh, 43 years old and an avid exerciser, and I was uh, on the treadmill in a class called Orange Theory, which is sort of like... You know how these different classes like Soul Cycle is big and Flywheel, and so Orange Theory is another one like that. It's like a franchise. And I was on the treadmill, and I had been going often, like four times a week. And um, suddenly, I over about a two week period, I noticed that I was breathless when I was on the treadmill um, at speeds where uh, you know which I'd normally be fine running. So I thought I actually thought I had a pulmonary issue. I thought maybe something was wrong. Um, with my lungs or my heart or something like that. So I went to the my general practitioner who ordered blood work and called me a few days later and said, you're really anemic. You better come right in. Um, in fact, said, "You, <laughs> there's definitely nothing wrong with your heart if you've been running with a hemoglobin of 7.9. <laughs> um, and six months before, it had been normal. So anyway, I guess the presumption is when you have a... Uh, Anemia, I guess it's usually a GI issue. So um, I just I underwent a GI workup, work and that's how the cancer was discovered. Did you then have a colonoscopy? Well, yeah, actually, at first they did an endoscopy, and um, I had two small uh, ulcers in my stomach, and they thought that was the cause of the anemia that and maybe heavy menstrual periods. And they sort of dismissed me and said, 
you know, you should probably follow up with a colonoscopy, but we think this is it. And luckily I did follow up with a colonoscopy. Um, and I was shocked when the doctor, I, I was waiting and waiting for the doctor to come out. I thought, gosh, when are they going to let me go already? Cause I had no symptoms, no bathroom related symptoms. I mean, it turns out there was microscopic blood in, in my stool, but I, I never would have known because the tumor was at the wide end of my colon on the right side. And so it's pretty well, any bleeding from the tumor is pretty well processed, I guess. So you don't really see it. It's not red. And there's no obstruction on the, there was no obstruction because that end of the colon is really wide. So I never would have known if I hadn't been vigorously working out. I don't think I would have noticed the breathlessness even if I hadn't been really exerting myself. What was your reaction when they first told you about the colonoscopy findings? I was shocked. He said, we found a mass. You know, we won't know for sure whether it's malignant for a day or so. But, I mean, obviously, I kind of knew it sounded like that was not going to be good news. And they did a CAT scan right away also. And luckily, they didn't see it anywhere else at that point. So I knew I'd have to have surgery on my uh, to remove uh, part of my colon. I knew that right away. And how long after the initial colonoscopy did you have the surgery? So I had a trip planned to Paris and I decided to keep the trip, um, to, to go on the trip anyway. And so it was two and a half weeks. Normally I wouldn't have waited that long, but because we had this trip planned and doctors assured me that the disease wouldn't progress in that time. And then when I had the surgery, um, it was in some nearby lymph nodes. So at that point, I found out that I would need oh, chemo after after the surgery. And what was chemotherapy like for you? Um, well, I had 12 cycles of full fox, which is administered every other week. Um, I would, the first, it was, it was over kind of a two-day period because the first day, it would be a Monday. I would stay in the in the you know in the chemo suite and infuse through a port of a port in my chest, and then I went home with a um, I call it a chemo grenade. It's like a bolus. Is that what it's called? Or I don't know. It's like a sort of a ball in a fanny pack of one drug that infuses over a two day period at home, and then a nurse came to my house and unplugged me. It was pretty tolerable. Toward the end, my hair thinned a little. I gained a tremendous amount of weight. That really surprised me. I thought people who were on chemo lost weight, but I mean, I weighed more than I weighed pregnant. It was terrible. It's actually easier than you think. Our anti-nausea medications are so good that people are not nauseous. They're not vomiting. They're eating during treatment, and it's actually easier to gain than to lose weight. My gosh. And plus, they put you on steroids to get through it, so... So um, that was hard, the steroids. I was a little emotionally erratic, like labile, emotionally labile from the steroids. I was a little um, just more volatile. I'm usually pretty even keeled. And what did life look like when you were getting chemotherapy? You were living in New Jersey at that time? Uh Uh-huh. So I um, am a single parent of two young children. And actually, I live with my mom in my childhood home, you know, um, you asked before what inspired my memoir. And, you know, while I was really fascinated by the relationship between my dad and my husband and also um, me, 
my marriage broke up when I had a newborn baby and uh, I lived in Manhattan at the time. It was my second child, uh, right after my second child was born. And I stayed for about two years on my own with the kids, but then it just got too hard. And I moved home at that point, my mother was widowed and I moved in with her. Um, so I had really, uh, anyway, so that is really the event that's inspired the memoir. The, the rest was anyway. So I was living it here in, um, central New Jersey with my mom. And so I had that support and I went through chemo mostly in the summer. So that was good because, um, I don't know, I didn't have the pressure of helping the kids with their homework and the warm weather was welcome and, uh, also one of the drugs I was on makes you sensitive to cold. So it was nice to not be in frigid weather while I was on that drug. So you were living at home with your mom and your kids and how did the kids react to the chemotherapy? You know, I have to tell you, I, I think they were concerned about me losing my hair and I really didn't on full Fox. And so I was pretty functional and it didn't really bother them. Um, I think for them, I was around, I got a babysitter part-time and they were, as long as I behaved normally, they were okay. I mean, they were, let's see, my daughter was in the first grade and my son was in the fifth grade. Um, they went to camp, they swam in the pool. I don't really think at that point, I, I really thought I was going to be okay and that I wouldn't have a recurrence. So the mood was pretty optimistic and, um, I can't say they were terribly, I don't think they were deeply affected. I mean, I don't think they would ever forget that it happened, of course, but uh, they were fine. What happened after you were done with chemotherapy? Well, first what happened when I was done was I was so surprised by how difficult it was after the chemo ended. I thought chemo would be over and I'd be fine. No, it was actually, I had a lot of neuropathy, numbness in my feet and hands after the chemo ended that I didn't really have during the chemo. I mean, I had it for a few days after each infusion, but then it subsided. But after the chemo, and I heard this is a thing, um, for a few months you could have pretty bad neuropathy. And I was just deeply fatigued after the chemo ended. So that surprised me, really surprised me how hard it was to, I'm going to say it took three to six months to really gain my strength back. And then of course I went on a major diet and went back to orange theory also. And, you know, it took a lot of work to get myself back and my hair took a long time to thicken. And it still hadn't fully thickened. Yes, I had a recurrence um, 18 months after my initial diagnosis, uh, a year, and it was a year after I finished chemo. And I'm told that with colon cancer, that's that's the peak time. What was the treatment at the time of the recurrence? Surgery, more chemotherapy? Right. So that was a nightmare. I was really shocked. Uh the recurrence happened on October 3rd of 2018. Um, well, I found out about it then. And it was just one small tumor, uh, two-centimeter tumor in my liver and and a local node, um, a mesenteric node. You know, one of the oncologists described it to me as two weeds in my garden. Like the first chemo pretty much, you know, was a partial success, killed everything except for these two weeds in my garden that cropped up later. And so... The hope was with colon cancer, the best chance for cure is surgery, really more so, I think, than chemo. Um, I mean, I guess chemo can kill it, but 
a lot of times it just delays a recurrence in what I'm told, but it, it certainly also can kill it. So I did three rounds of um, a different chemo, Fulfurinox, which is a combination of Fulfury, which is the first-line treatment in Europe, and Fulfox, which I had the first time around. And apparently, like, when these two drugs are, when these two different therapies, they're both made up of multiple drugs, are combined, the effect is, I don't know, it's sort of like a supercharged effect. So I had three cycles of that, same as the first time, every other week, and the same thing with the 46-hour chemo grenade at home um, after infusing in the hospital. And then I had surgery in early December, and things looked really clean, and um, the surgeon who was amazing, was really happy with the result, felt that, and, and the margins were clear and everything. And so, and then I, I can, I, I'm still on chemo now. We continued with chemo after the surgery. And how many more cycles do you have planned? Yeah, that's a, it's on my mind constantly. Um, you know, they sent the tumor material to um, Foundation Medicine for genetic testing, although, you know, in colon cancer, it's my understanding that there's not a lot of practical applications at this point for molecular, as a result of molecular testing, just because there's so, there's so few colon cancers at this point that respond to the immunotherapies that are currently available. Anyway, they sent it to Foundation Medicine anyway to find out about my genetic mutations. There wasn't even enough malignancy in the cells for Foundation Medicine to give them a read. So that certainly indicated that the three treatments I had, there was a major effect um, and so that's great news. And so it made me decide that I should continue chemo after to kill any rogue cells that may be hanging around, any microscopic cells. So the plan is to go up to 12 treatments total. But, you know, I've been reading that, that sometimes um, three months of chemo is as effective as six months. So I'm not sure. I'm really not sure it's worth it to go to the full 12. I'm going to talk to my doctor about that on Tuesday. I seem to be handling it really well. It's a dubious distinction. I handle chemo so well, but um, I'm really okay. I still have my hair and I'm fine. You know, the week of chemo is tough, but the second week that I'm off, I'm really pretty good. Was it harder the second time around? Did you feel like it took a more difficult toll on your body? This is a more aggressive chemo, so it's more difficult um, than the first time around. And emotionally, it's harder because I'm just terrified that I had this recurrence. And, you know, there's still a chance for cure here. I'm still in the cure category, but the odds certainly aren't as good as they were the first time. So I'm, I'm very frightened. So that's harder emotionally. And it is a more aggressive chemo, but I don't feel like the combination of having had it once before and then having it now is making it more difficult. And how has everything been this time around doing chemotherapy, coping with a recurrence, your children getting older? Frankly, I wish I could tell you, like I'm really working on it. I wish I could tell you that I feel like it's not on my mind all the time, but it really is. I'm really frightened. And I'm going to have to have scans like every three months for quite a long time. It's, I'm going through it right now. I think I'm a really good self-advocate and I don't leave any stone unturned. You know, I went to NIH before I, Bethesda, Maryland, actually, before I had surgery to really investigate whether I should, you know, look into immunotherapy there. I mean, I've seen multiple oncologists. I really have done my research, but I feel like the cancer is on my mind a little too much and I wish I were able to, to not. But as far as my kids go, they're still great. I mean, I'm gaining weight again, so they, they notice that. And um, 
they keep asking me if I'm going to lose my hair because I was supposed to with this treatment, but it, so far I haven't. And they're great. I mean, I, I can't say that they, I, I, I can't say, I think because I'm positive and really still functional that they are okay too, you know, and that I have my mom's support too. Their life hasn't changed, you know? It's so true. Kids sense the positive atmosphere and the calm and they can feed off that. And I think their behavior mimics what you model for them. Yeah. So I'm curious as to what inspired your memoir. Sure. What prompted my memoir is that uh, my marriage broke up when I had a newborn baby girl. I still had stitches from a C-section, and I had a -a three-and-a-half-year-old son as well. And after sticking it out for about two years in the city on my own, I ultimately decided, you know what, this for the stability of my children and for myself, I need to get out of here. And I moved back into my childhood home with my widowed mother um, into the basement. And it was a deeply humbling experience and wound up being the best thing for all of us. Um, just reinforced the primacy of family and motherhood and the power of our roots. Can you talk about the transition from New York City to New Jersey? It was radical for me. Um, I think particularly because uh, the culture is so much different. I mean, the people where I'm from in New Jersey are are, um, a lot of small business owners, blue collar in mindset, though often they're fairly financially successful. Um, And I ran with a pretty artsy crowd in the city and maybe a bit of a moneyed crowd too. Um, So that's been hard for me, I have to be honest, but I've, it's really taught me, it's really kind of taught me to look beyond that and just focus on people's hearts and their values and their values here are good and strong. And it's been very stable for, for me and my kids have the support of their grandma and I haven't had financial pressure and I've been able to write this book while I'm here. And how has the diagnosis of colon cancer affected the memoir and what you're writing about now? Yeah, it's definitely affecting the end of my book. It also affected my life. You know, I've had, um, I had a boyfriend for the past six and a half years, Jack, who lives in Washington, D.C., and we've had this long-distance relationship for all these years, and he's wonderful. And, you know, cancer can really make things super clear, like it just clarifies your priorities, you know? We got married in, in the midst of my cancer recurrence, so that was so nice. And now we're making plans for later. Um, he has a son who lives with him half the week, so that's why we've he can't move, and, and, and I, I don't want to move there. So actually, we're making plans for what to do when his son, his son's a junior in high school. When he goes to college, we're, trying, we're figuring out how we're going to arrange to um, be in the same place. So that's exciting. So it's helped me move forward in that way. And even with my writing, I just feel like I'm, um, you know, your priorities just, just become that much more sharpened. My priorities have always been my kids, but even, even, even more so now, I'm just, when I'm with them, I'm really, I mean, I've always been really present and, and in tune, but um, I'm just more aware of the preciousness of each moment. It really puts things into perspective and makes you appreciate what's truly important, what matters in life. And how did the marriage come about? Did you one day just say, hey, let's get married? Yeah, pretty much. We did. That's we great. said, you know what? Let's, let's do this. 
And we did. We just went to City Hall, and I look forward to being able to have a, a real celebration when when um, finished with chemo and stuff like that. You know what? How else it really affected me? I think the recurrences. I've been kind of. I've been a little bit kicking and screaming the past. Um, bunch of years living here in my childhood home. And um, it made me, I think, finally realize how, uh, first of all, how lucky I am to have a mother who let me move back in with her. And also um, how lucky I am to have that support. Uh, You know, I've made a choice. uh, You know, I'm a lawyer, but I, I practice minimally and, you know, made a choice to write so I don't make as much money as I would if I were busting my butt at a law firm. So, um, it made me feel better even about that decision, like all this time that I've poured into parenting and, um, being home and my art, I really feel like, oh yeah, you know, I did the right thing. I did the right thing. Like it's okay. I've been doing the right thing. You know, it was so humbling to have to move back home and that's a big focus of the book too. And I think this finally made it all feel like, oh, like maybe, maybe this, not that maybe this was why, you know, but it just, thank goodness I took that conservative route. And you know, imagine if I were really struggling to make ends meet somewhere on my own with an expensive rent or something and really being a true single mom without any help from family. I mean, I shouldn't, there's all different kinds of, of, of single parents, but I really feel just so supported by, by my mother and my hometown and to not have the financial pressure is, is a big, is a big, um, help, you know? Absolutely. Financial toxicity is just not addressed as often as it should. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is that cancer treatment costs a lot of money. And we are just not talking about it. You're right. And you know what I'm really shocked about? In the past, it was always that, you know, there was one deductible and that was it. Now it's not that way. There's like a hospital deductible, a regular deductible. My medications have all of these deductibles. I can't believe how much I'm laying out, even with health insurance. And it's a big stress for people who may not be able to afford treatment. And that's on top of physical side effects and emotional side effects. And it's can be thousands of dollars that you don't have. We're also at the beginning of the year, so people have to meet their deductible, which is often a large sum of money. Honestly, it feels like nearly every day there's a bill in the mail, to be be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. It's truly crazy how much things cost. So to switch gears a little bit, you've written about going back to your maiden name and how you reclaimed your identity by doing that. Can you share more? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that I had, you know, thinking of yourself as, as, you know, modern and feminist and taking my husband's, my first husband's name in the first place, um, is sort of ironic, but, um, because he, he had this Chinese last name for some reason, it felt to me almost like progressive that I took this name that of, of someone who was a different race and from different culture than, than I, um, it almost felt like I was really kind of like affirming the choice to blend our two worlds. But, you know, in the midst of my cancer recurrence, when I married Jack and then also just really feeling so much gratitude for my roots, these roots that I, in, in a lot of ways that I had uh, rejected, you know, or been running from all my life, um, I suddenly wanted to reclaim. And I suddenly felt so lucky for this 
um, pull yourself up by the bootstraps metal that I, that I come from that my dad, you know, was a man who, who commuted to Brooklyn every day in a meat truck. My mom helped start his business with him too. And anyway, I suddenly just, I think I finally grew up, which sounds crazy that you'd be in your forties and finally grow up, but there you have it, you know? Um, and I think I finally made peace with, with those roots and really wanted to own them again. And so I went back to my, my, um, maiden name many years after divorce. So that was interesting, but it really felt like another choice. There's so much I can't control with this cancer recurrence. And that was something I could control. And, um, it felt like a way of reclaiming myself, you know? And your kids have Chang as their maiden name. Yes. My kids have Chang, my, my ex-husband, they were upset that I went back to my, that really upset them. And so I think it felt like a loss to them. And, um, like some kind of, like I was separating from them in some kind of way. I don't know that they understood. They don't really like to even talk about it. <laughs> I think that they, they have enough security and everything that they will grow to accept it. What can I tell you? You know, <laughs> I feel like I've done so much to put them first. This was something I had to do really to put me first, you know? And that's important. You are a better parent when you do some things for yourself. Right? Mm -hmm. Have you raised them in both the Chinese and Jewish cultures? Yeah, I don't really, I, I, I don't send my kids to Hebrew school or anything like that. It just became a little untenable because they visit their dad um, every other weekend in the city. But, um, and they certainly have, though we certainly celebrate Jewish holidays with my family. They certainly see their dads, um, their grandparents who live in Princeton, uh, and they get really a lot of Chinese culture on that end. So I think... They get bits of both, but I don't really feel like it's much religion. I feel like from a religious standpoint, I'm probably more of a Buddhist. I try to just be really present and connected to um, the world around me. And so I try to instill that in them. And and I do feel like spirituality is important at a time like this. So, um, you know, we've done some, my, my daughter has had a few moments of like, breaking down and being afraid. And we've just really worked on like, breathing and being grounded in the present and realizing that all we have is right now and nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. So I would say, um, you know, that's more of sort of like a spiritual lesson than it is a religious one. So along that, how do you not let cancer take over your life and stay in the moment and not let those thoughts creep into your head? I move my body. If I go out, I have a puppy and walk the dog it usually really helps. Like moving my body moves my mind. You know, I look at the world around me. I tune into my five senses. I look at the treetops. I look at the sky. I breathe. I make sure I can smell the air. I listen. You know, that's how. I really ground myself. What I struggle more with is just, I, I'm constantly trying to learn. I'm, I, I know so much right now about cancer and a lot of it, I don't know that they really, you know, it's sort of like I've gone to conferences and things like that. So sometimes I just, ha it's hard for me to accept that I just don't know what the future brings in terms of my health. And I'm constantly trying to arm myself with information and maybe it's to my detriment. Maybe I need to let go of that a bit and stop trying to learn so much because I, there's nothing I can really do with the information at this point, you know? So information is power sometimes and sometimes it's not. You were diagnosed at a young age, so I imagine that you don't know too many people who have cancer. That's true. 
has that been hard and have you utilized support groups to meet people? No, I haven't. What's hard, I think, is that I felt for a long time a little bit marooned here in my hometown. You know, Jack is not here. He's in D.C. So it's not like we're together as a couple and it's not like I chose to live here. It kind of happened. It was kind of an emergency landing. So I feel a little bit, you know, mostly in the suburbs, it's... um it's couples and suburban life. And, you know, so I, I mean, luckily I do feel like I'm kind of in, like I have my own sort of self-imposed, it's almost like a writing retreat. I, I just kind of like write my book a lot. I work on it a lot. So that's great. Yeah, no, I don't know many people. And I think that that kind of adds to my a little bit sense of isolation to, to tell you the truth. And it can be hard because you don't necessarily have a lot of people who know what you're going through, both emotionally and physically? Well, there's a bunch of, um, actually on Facebook, there's a number of quite valuable uh, groups like Blue Hope Nation and Colon Town. Um, it's sort of a mixed bag because I sometimes feel really upset after I yeah. go on the sites, but at the same time, it's also been helpful. And I also don't want to live cancer all the time. You know, like I do have one friend who has um, breast cancer and she's a wonderful advocate and raises tons of money. And, but that also means that she's, she's really deeply in a community and sometimes people die and you have to face that. I'm not at that point yet. I really would like to give back and find a way, but right now I'm just kind of, I'm so in it that I, um, I'm not there yet, you know? But I think you are giving back by living, by writing, by sharing your experiences. That means so much to many people. And on that note, when is the memoir coming out? I don't know. I haven't been really disciplined about not, um, like I, you could write a book proposal and sell it um, before a book is done. You know, I've really uh, just tried to focus on the work. I haven't, I haven't sold it yet. I haven't, I haven't tried. I feel confident that I will, but I, um, I'm just really trying to do the work. I don't want to get sidetracked by the notion of publication. Sometimes I, I really feel like the work is about living from the inside out. And I worry that if I'm thinking about um, eyes on it, I'm going to be thinking about the outside in. You know what I mean? So I'm just really in the writing process right now and not not worried about that yet, but I'm almost done. I think I should have, have it finished within three to six months and it's pretty well realized. So at that point, I, you know, I'll, I'll work on, on getting it sold. And do you write for a set time each day? Yeah, right. I work every morning for a couple hours. Um, I'm going to have lunch. I kind of just toy with what I've done and like edit a bit before the kids come home. But you know, I also haven't been able to exercise the way I normally do because of the chemo. And that's been hard. Like a dog walk is the exercise pretty much. Whereas it used to be, I could really burn off whatever angst I had at the gym. Chemo just, um, strips you down. You don't have that. So that's been a little challenging too. I'm also not unfortunately eating as well. I think after chemo, I'm going to really make uh, an effort to like watch things that are inflammatory because we're finding out so much about inflammation. But I, it's not that I don't have the discipline. It's just that my stomach hurts and I can't, I just can't, I have to just eat what's a little bit comforting to me right now, you know? And that's okay. I tell my patients that during chemo, it's okay to eat whatever you want if you're not feeling well. 
do you? Because I, I, it troubles me a lot. I'm like, geez, I'm, I shouldn't be having sugar. I shouldn't be having. So my viewpoint on this is during chemo, it's really important to eat enough calories to fuel your body, to help your body fight the chemotherapy. And on some days, that may mean a, quote, healthier option. And on some days, that may mean an unhealthier option. And that's different for different people. But I think the bottom line is just eating, eating to fuel your body. Well, that's good to know. I'm also, you know, it's confusing, too, at this juncture, like in cancer care, because there's so much talk about immunotherapy. And I'm aware that with each aggressive chemo treatment, I'm beating down my immune system. So I'm thinking to myself, where is this? Where is the point of inflection where I'm doing more harm than good with the chemo? So I don't think anyone knows yet. We've come so far with immunotherapy in the last five years, but there's still so much that we need to learn. Yes, and that's the hope, right? Yes, though we are always moving forward toward a cure, and at the very least making cancer a chronic illness that one can live with for a very long period of time. And you know what else? As far as colon cancer goes, I just want to mention this because I feel like it's so important. I mean, it's been widely reported, but people who aren't paying attention to cancer issues may not be aware that there's just been a steep uptick um, recently in um, colon cancer among younger people, and they don't really know why yet. And so the American Medical Association lowered the the age for um, the recommended age for getting a colonoscopy from 50 to 45. It's entirely preventable. So uh, this disease, I mean, largely, I think it's something like 90% preventable. So I know it's like not fun to talk about colonoscopies and the prep is certainly unpleasant, but sure is worth getting one if you could really, uh, it, colon cancer starts with polyps and um, as you well know. And so if you get a colonoscopy and they just take out the polyps, which they can do right in the colonoscopy, you're preventing a polyp from growing into a tumor. So it's worth it. You're absolutely right. I'm asking everyone in my practice who's 45 and over, did you get your colonoscopy? And so many people have not heard these new recommendations. So I'd like to end with a few questions. What has been your pet peeve or something that has angered you when going through a treatment? Honestly, the pity that I sometimes see people look at me with. I just feel like, you know what? It's not a death sentence. I'm going to beat this. And um, I know I will. Like, it might be really, I'm not saying that there might not be a bump in the road, but I just feel like, I just don't feel like I'm going to die from this. I just don't, like, I, I can't believe I have colon cancer. Like, I'm, I'm not overweight. I have no, like, genetic predisposition to it. It just doesn't feel like my time. Like, this doesn't feel like my fate. It just doesn't. I think I really just can't take it when someone's looking at me like I'm, like, like I'm not going to be okay. That's a pet peeve. And has that affected your friendships in any way? Maybe a little bit. I, uh, a little bit. I mean, my, my two closest friends, uh, certainly it hasn't affected me 
with it all. One, one, um, they're both from college and one sends me a care package for every single chemo. And they're these amazing creative care packages. And we talk every day and the other lives in the city and gives me her apartment to stay at after every chemo and makes me a dinner because just the trip back to New Jersey from Manhattan is really exhausting for me. So those two friendships have deepened and my relationship with Jack has deepened, but perhaps some of my more casual, just like mommy lunch date friendships have been affected, but those aren't friendships that I deeply valued anyway. But no, I mean, it more happens like in casual moments, like, um, you know, if I'm getting a manicure and the manicurist looks at me, I, 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 that just happened. And I just thought, no, you don't know. It's not, don't look at me like I'm this dying person sitting whose hands you're working on, you know? So it's more, it's more in casual. I would say it's in less close relationships where people don't really know, you know, it's not that they don't mean well, they just don't know. They don't know my case. They don't know about cancer. That's just distance. And as you've gone through this, is there anything that you wish you had known when starting out? That's a great question. Um, no, I, I feel like I did. I did everything right. It just this is how it happened, you know. And is there anything that has surprised you about the whole experience? I'm surprised it came back, and I'm really surprised that there's no system for doctors at different hospitals to share information. What a pain! What a pain it is! What a pain! I can't believe it. You have I have Manila envelopes, Manila folders of of my scans, and I'm constantly, you know, that's something I would tell people to do. Make sure you get the actual discs and the reports, and um, be a, your own advocate. Man, I'm my I'm my my own advocate. But yeah, there should be some massive system, some integrated system where doctors can share information. And unfortunately, right now it doesn't work. Right. So that's, that's a challenge. Aside from that, is there any advice you'd give to someone who is newly diagnosed? Just make sure you have a lot of emotional support and be your own best advocate for sure. Get an education. It's really helped me feel empowered, you know? Um, and I think it really, you know, even though I kind of mentioned that I'm, I can be a little obsessive about learning, I do think it makes me, it gives me at least some sense of control um, whether it's fictional or not, it gives me a sense that, you know, I have a little bit of a handle on this, you know, and I got a few different opinions for every kind of, not too many, but a few, and that helped too. And they differed. That's surprising too. There hasn't been, you know, it's one thing when you're in at an earlier stage, like let's say when I was first diagnosed, it's 12 sessions of full Fox. That's the standard thing that you get for colon cancer. But later on with this recurrence, there's mixed opinions. I mean, most people would say get a few, because I had that lymph node, they say get a few treatments before the surgery. Some don't say that though. And many don't advise getting chemo after the surgery. There's, cause there's really, I guess, not totally clear data to support it. So that's surprising. My goodness, how many smart people can have a difference of opinion. So you obviously had to decide what to do. Was that hard? How did you make the decision? I really dug deep and asked myself what I thought was right. I'm at a point now where I'm starting to think, okay, am I really going to do this full 12 or is like nine enough? And I have to just kind of like check in with myself and see I'm handling it really well, like I said, and I'm strong. That is the benefit to being strong and in shape beforehand, I think. You can, you can weather chemo well, um, and my counts have been good. I really don't have neuropathy. 
right now. Um, though I know the odds of having permanent neuropathy with this much oxaliplatin are high. I'm just, I, I'll, I'm going to speak to my doctor on Tuesday. It is definitely cumulative and getting more and more unpleasant, but I think I just, I really checked in myself with myself. I'm being, I'm treated at Cornell and then I had my surgery at Mount Sinai and my liver surgery. And I just talked to all the doctors and really, oh, you know what I would tell somebody? This is a good one. Keep a journal and write it down. I mean, it's a practice I didn't even think to mention because I have always kept a journal anyway. It's part of my constitution since I was 11 years old. But um, I mean, I think doctors probably make fun of me because I sit there writing down everything they say. But um, it really helps because I can review my notes, things you don't, you don't process when you're in the moment. It's too emotional. You don't hear it. But when you look at it later, you're like, I got it. Ah, I see that. I, you know, that's yeah, helpful. It's completely agree. You hear so much information and it's hard to process everything. It's really helpful to write it down, go home and kind of then reflect and say, wait, what did I just hear? Any other advice? Well, it might sound like surprising advice, but I would say to consider adopting a pet. You know, you're going through so much with cancer and so you might think, gosh, I don't need one more thing on my plate. But I have to tell you that we adopted a rescue puppy while I was going through chemo. And it absolutely lifted the spirits of everyone in my family. This little puppy, we named her Ohio because she was rescued from Ohio, from the shelter in Ohio. And it's just my kids had a diversion. Even my mom, who is um, quite serious and, you know, very by the book, has just fallen in love with this puppy. And for me, too, it just gives you a sense of immediacy. It's like a happy shot. Boom. And I have to tell you that my father was sick with cancer years ago. He had esophageal cancer. I was never a dog person. It was before I had children. And I knew I couldn't give him a grandchild. So that was when I got my first puppy, when he was sick. And it was the same same effect. He, we made, he made us break him out of Sloan Kettering to come play with my puppy. So, I mean, it could really work wonders. Just puts you in the immediacy of the moment. And just is complete joy. Definitely great advice and something that would put you in a great mood for sure. Really helped me and my family. And so to end, can you think of one word to describe this whole experience, for lack of a better phrase? I think stunning. It's really been just, um, I'm just so surprised still. Um, It's really hard to wrap my head around, but also stunning in terms of... um, the love and the support and the hope and, um, you know, the intimacy in my closest relationships. I like that a lot. Thank you so much for being here and so much for sharing your incredible journey. And I wish you all the luck in the future. Mm, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for, thanks for doing the work you do. Thank you for joining me to hear my conversation with Perry. It was so wonderful to hear her experience, and how she is really living and being present despite having recurrent colon cancer. I'm so looking forward to reading her memoir when it comes out. All of her writings, as well as an excerpt from her memoir, The Meatpacker's Daughter, can be found at www.perryburke.com. Perry's also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you for listening today. I cannot wait to share more powerful stories with you over the coming weeks and months. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to 
leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as this is the best way to grow the show. You can head on over to my Instagram and Twitter page, Dr. Duplinsky, for more podcast information and cancer news and updates. Finally, if you or someone you know would be interested in being a guest on the show, please email me at interludecancerstories at gmail.com.